I was going to say, is there one for when your Grot kills the Terminator? Episode 30 of the Narrative Wargamer Podcast, a non-competitive 40k podcast with a focus on fun and narrative gameplay, as well as hobby news and our latest hobby projects. I am Tony Rhodes, and tonight I'm joined by Dan Wellington. Hello. As always, before we get started, you can find us at Narrative Wargamer on Facebook, or you can follow us on Twitter at Narrative40k and on Instagram at Narrative Wargamer. You can also contact us by email at narrativewargamer at gmail.com if you have any questions or if you'd like to join us on a future episode. If you want to support the show and help us grow, you can do so by joining our Patreon from only $2 a month. As a supporter, you can listen to our bonus episodes on Patreon and gain access to our patrons-only group chat. The support from our patrons helps us produce the show and towards awesome new content for you guys in the future. Finally, if you want to support the show for free, you can do so by visiting the awesome folks over at Element Games for all your hobby supplies and gaming miniatures. Just use our affiliate link below to visit their web store, and that way any purchases you make will directly help support the podcast. Links for everything are in the description below, so please check them out and get involved with the growing community. Right. tonight it's actually been shrinking a little bit, because it's just you and me tonight, Dan. Ah, mm. well... People are busy. It's fine. Yeah. We already got stalled out a week or two on recording this as last week. I had no internet at my house. Yep. Yep. I I even, just for this, I didn't go into work tonight. And it has nothing to do with the fact that I am currently self-isolating. Not at all. But at least it is somewhat to my benefit as now it means I get you here for the podcast. Just, Just to reassure everyone, as far as I can tell, I don't have COVID. <laughs> Good. I'm glad to hear it. I mean, I know we all actually did a, a household set of tests yesterday because yeah. uh, we needed to prove we didn't have anything, and we don't, so we're all nice and healthy. Good-o. Yeah, and I, I have been doing know. regular tests, and uh, as far as I can tell, even if I had it, I wouldn't be able to give it to you over a podcast anyway. So, <laughs> we're good. Well, it depends... Unless it starts, you know, translating into a scrap code based virus, <laughs> and then it could mm. possibly make its way across the new sphere to me all the way over here. That sounds like a link to me. <laughs> so yes, uh, tonight we are going to be discussing um, Warzone Jaradon Book Two, um, the Book of Flame. Nathan called it Warzone. I was going to call it the Book of Slime. I was like, that's not right. <laughs> That's the um, that's what they decided to name this part of the conflict. It's like the War of Slime and Rust or something. Oh, right. <laughs> but yes, it's a book two, the Book of Flame. Um, so I'm sure that, you know many people have listened to various other podcasts by now who've done them more up to date on the you know dot meta discussing impacts and changes that have been brought by this book. And basically, unless you play um, Armored Lady or Skitari, then it's not really had much impact, has it? Seemingly on the 
wider um, meta no. environment that I'm aware of. But that's fine because that's not what we're here to discuss. Yes. Uh, no, I, instead... I think at this stage, if you're playing just Guitari, maybe. Maybe you don't need this book anyway. Well, like I say, it's it's a bit of an odd one, really. We'll, um, I, guess, I guess we'll mention it now at the top of the show, but uh, elements that we are not going to be covering uh, tonight are going to include the Codex Supplement for the Order of Armated Lady, the Army of Renown for the Skitari Veteran Cohort, or the various fact that there is all the like, Chaos Space Marine Appendix stuff in here. So, if you play Armated Lady... You have more stuff. Great. Enjoy <laughs> it. Like, it's not that it's bad. Some of it's good. It's more options. And if you play that order, I'm sure you'll enjoy it. I know that if I had a, yep. an expansion like this for Death Skulls Clan for my orcs, I'd probably enjoy that. Um, <laughs> but then, funnily enough, we're not actually going to bother covering the Skatari veteran cohort. Not so much so because it probably has had a fair bit of coverage on recent podcasts elsewhere, but also because, if I'm honest, I actually kind of found it a bit, not underwhelming, not at all, but just a bit plain. Yeah. <laughs> so it's basically just it's the reverse of the Army of Renown from the Book of Rust, whereas that one was all about the Mechanicus units and you had to exclude Skitari. This yep. is all about the Skitari units and you have to exclude the Mechanicum elements. Yep. But... Basically, the offset for doing so is just that everything you have just gets a bit better. Yeah. Units get extra leadership and attacks, and all the stratagems and warlord traits basically just revolve around doing things better. Like yeah. Get extra shots, extra attacks, or pluses to wound or hit. It was honestly just quite straightforward. It was just this does normal stuff better. Yeah. It's. And, uh... Not super exciting to us. No, not really. I mean, like I say, it, it is very good in terms of what it does on the tabletop, but that's just because it's that's kind of its shtick. It just does its good. Yeah. <laughs> um, and yeah, sure, you pay a couple of points and power level for it, but that's basically the whole thing summed up right there. Yeah, there you go. Um, so yeah. <laughs> That, that is our extensive coverage of the Skitari Veteran Cohort. I hope you enjoyed it. Yep. Fun. Otherwise, instead, we are going to be diving into all sorts of other things from the Book of Fire, which is going to include the second part of the Charidon campaign system. So this is the Charidon Aflame campaign. We've got a brand new set of free legendary missions to go through. So again, we'll have our mini mission focus segment for those. We've got a selection of expanded crusade rules some of which are quite interestingly tied to the campaign system. Um, and we are going to cover the Disciples of Belacor, because by comparison to the Skitari veteran cohort, the Disciples of Belacor do a lot of exciting and unusual things in the context of like army construction and unit selection and even the abilities and stratagems they have. I would say, if anything, they're, they're almost the polar opposite because everything they do is kind of unlocking elements or strategies or abilities you couldn't otherwise do without this army of renown. Yeah, it's uh, it's kind of expanding on other collections 
of bringing them together rather than reducing the amount of options from a book. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's that's what we're going to cover tonight. So as with our last book of <laughs> coverage episode, uh, we're not going to have anything uh, from the Paint Station Garrison or our games played this week because there's a lot to get through. So we're just going to jump straight into it. And um, yeah, it's going to be a lot of sort of crunchy rules talk tonight, but it's going to be fun stuff. Um, so it's somewhat in contrast to our previous episode, which, by the way, has done really well, and it seems like the community has really enjoyed. So if you haven't already listened to our 40k fun facts, then uh, go back and give it a listen, because um, we had fun doing that, didn't we, Dan? Absolutely. I'm um, uh, hoping we get the excuse to do it again. <laughs> I'm already working on the show notes for doing it again. Um, so that was when we we basically talked we spent an episode talking about law didn't we it was everything from the so like narrative events from the book of rust but not so much a breakdown of the conflicts that happened as more all just the really cool and unusual or abstract things that are just so very 40k universe stuff that sort of like yes. happened within the setting um and i quizzed you and dave about it yes uh and crucially uh dave and i neither of us had read it yes <laughs> yeah so you hadn't read the uh in-depth lore elements from the book and i uh i made you sit through a series of sort of like uh true or false options wasn't it really trying to pick out what i'd fabricated and what was actually happened despite it may have been completely ridiculous as a concept it did happen in the law <laughs> yeah second guessing games workshop writers is uh, a challenge shall we say especially when it came to death card names ah uh, yes <laughs> <laughs> which i'm not going to tell you what exactly but there is going to be another name game round oh and uh, I think you'll particularly enjoy it, and I'm going to have fun coming up with uh, the series of false names for this one, because I can't just use a name generator. It's <laughs> going to be more complicated than that. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, so yeah, uh, the only other thing really to cover before we jump into the Book of Fire proper is that uh, since the last show, we have got one brand new a- uh, patron to shout out. Hooray. So thank you very much to Mr. Eric Dacus. I don't know if I've pronounced that correctly or not, but thank you, Eric. And uh, you can now quite happily enjoy listening to our casual conversations over on the Patreon. And I have got in contact with you, but you've not got back to me yet. And if you do um, want to join our Facebook um, patrons-only chat group, then just let me know and I'll get you added to it in no time at all. Um, so yeah, that's thank you, Eric. Hope you've enjoyed the past shows, and I hope you enjoy this one, and ideally the future ones as well. <laughs> um, so yeah, we'll be back in a moment, guys, with the first part of our coverage of Warzone Charadon Book Two, The Book of Fire. And we're back, guys, this time for what is the second part of the extended Charadon campaign system. So last time when we covered the Book of Rust, we had the Obolis invasion campaign. 
and in Book of Flame, this is sort of continued with a sister campaign system called the Charidon of Flame campaign. And uh, to be honest, it's starting to follow the kind of predetermined campaign template that we've seen across a few 9th edition publications now. So if any of you have listened to our Book of Rust coverage or our Flashpoint Argavon coverage, then you'll be familiar now with the sort of standard three-phase campaign format that Games Workshop has been presenting with these um, campaign systems. So using a Grand Alliance, typically Imperial, Chaos and other, <laughs> but not necessarily always that case. Um, a Campaign Master um, and the occurring of Warzone points across three phases of the campaign and whichever Grand Alliance, as it were, acquires the most Warzone points per phase, um, wins that phase and acquires a strategic point for their alliance. And then after all three phases, whichever alliance has the most strategic points wins the campaign. Does that all sound familiar, Dan? Yes, it sounds very familiar. Yeah. I mean, I'm not going to knock it. I think it works, and I think it's one of the best modern interpretations of a multi-stage campaign system that they've created in you know, the past decade. It does It does feel like it's quite well designed uh, for a specific purpose mm. of being you know, a club or group running a campaign over a month or a couple of months or whatever. Yeah, so we were just discussing pre-show a little bit about how we think that perhaps some of these campaign systems have not had the opportunity to shine as they were intended because of you know, the year that was yes. 20. Like, <laughs> and, mm. waves like vaguely around me, all of this. <laughs> and, like, in theory now, this could be, like, the third, like, three-month sort of style campaign system that they've put out there. And if, you know, players have been playing crusade or campaigns for a year or so and then you know this could be something that was more familiar to gaming groups and gaming clubs um, than it has been so yeah i i would like to have had a chance to try out myself you know if i'd been a regular at a gaming club every week for this past year i feel like yeah. i would probably have played through one of these imagine how buff our camp our crusade armies would be at this stage <laughs> Ooh, i would have some really shiny goblins on my wall boss yep which, side note, I am very tempted to just make every kind of like level up for my um, mega boss to just be a weapon enhancement for his big shooter. Yeah, fair. <laughs> so he just ends up with the fanciest, most customy shooter ever because he's already the got a biggest big shooter. <laughs> yeah. Nice. <laughs> um, but yeah, so one way that the Charred on the Flame campaign varies compared to the Bolus Invasion campaign from the previous book is that this time around there are no theatres of war in effect for each of the phases okay or at least there's no prescribed ones um which were intended to be used during those phases of the campaign instead you know players could feel free to use any battle zone they would like for any given game possibly those from the vast selection from the white dwarf (laughs) issues based in charadon um or the previous book or the previous book. Instead, what we've got to make this campaign a bit different is the inclusion of Warzone assets. Now, 
This basically is very similar to the Xenotech Rewards system from Argavon. So this is the one where in the third phase of the Argavon campaign, the alliances would essentially take turns picking which, you know, like Xenotech Reward would become a an alliance-wide boon for their alliance to use. Yeah, um, and they took the form of uh, unique stratagems, didn't they? Yes. Um, and the like, the leading alliance would pick first, and then the next, and then the third, and then the fourth, and so on. Um, yeah. And they would remove their choices from the pool for the preceding picks. Well, basically, that's what the Warzone asset system is. Okay. Um, except that this runs across all three phases of the campaign. Right. And um, the number that you pick increases incrementally each phase. So in phase one, each alliance picks two. Phase two, each alliance picks three assets. And in phase three, each alliance picks four assets. Okay. Now, like um, (laughs) with Argavon, the alliances pick in leading order. Um, In in the first phase, it advises you randomize. You know what that is. Um, And when an alliance picks a warzone asset, it's removed from the pool of available ones for the remaining alliances to pick from. However, those choices get reset every phase. Right. So if if by chance the Imperials get to pick first in phase one and they pick a deep void battle station, um, then in phase two, if the Chaos Alliance is winning, they get to pick first. They might pick the deep void battle station. Fair enough. So those choices are um, reset each campaign phase. So this is one of the reasons why I think it also looks really well as a gaming club sort of campaign system because there's that every uh, month or so. There's this idea that the alliances would get together and they would, as a team, they would decide which warzone assets they want to pick, you know, for yeah. the alliance to benefit from. Yeah, that's a pretty cool sort of little... Uh, it's uh, a teamwork-based decision, not yeah. just one person who picks and that's it. I mean, you could in theory nominate like a team captain to make those picks, but ultimately it is a, it's an alliance-based decision process rather than just on the yeah. individual. It, it represents a kind of wider strategic level decision-making that mm-hmm. you don't get on the, on the individual game basis. And... Uh, there are, in fact, 17 of these different Warzone assets, so there's quite a variety, and I would say they're all pretty good. Fair enough. So, um, before any battle is played in the campaign, after determining the attacker and defender, both players can select one of their alliances assigned Warzone assets to use in the battle. So you don't get all of them, you get to pick one from your like pool of options for that phase. Yep. Uh, and in addition, you have access to a unique stratagem, which basically is a free CP stratagem that lets you pick a second Warzone asset to right. have in effect. Cool. So in phase one, you could have both of your alliance's assets to your advantage. In phase three, you could be picking two or four. Yeah. Um... And we'll just go through a couple of them now, because there are some interesting ones here. So I mentioned the Deep Void Battle Station. Yes. This 
just provides you with an additional D3 command points. That's cool. Which I guess is not something you're going to bother with if you're going to spend free CP to get a second <laughs> one. Yeah. But if you're um, opting just to take your one, then you're yes. getting D3 extra command points, which if your opponent is spending free in order to use a second yeah. asset, you're actually going to be up on them between four and six CP. Well, I, I don't know what they are yet because you haven't told me, but I'm assuming some of them are somewhat situational. Uh, a couple, but most of them are all pretty good. So you've so got all, uh, extra, all C- extra CP is always going to be useful, right? So it, it's, yeah. I can see that being a, a valuable pick. I mean, especially if, say, you're playing a small-scale game. Like, if you play Combat Patrol, and you get an additional D3 command points on top of the, what is it, six that you get at that level? Uh, three, I think. Is it three? Yeah. The Combat Patrol. Yeah, so three plus D3 versus the three that your opponent have. have. Yeah, it's quite a lot, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, but the, some of the other options here, like Auden's Batteries in the first battle round, subtract two inches from the movement characteristic of enemy models. Enemy units okay. cannot advance, and each time oh. a charge is declared for an enemy unit, roll one less d6 for that charge roll. So, that that's pretty brutal. Yeah, that's basically keeping your opponent more or less in place in the first battle round. Which yeah. that's going to give you the opportunity to move forwards and claim objectives and start taking the lead on the primary points. Hmm. Uh, we've can, got ri- yeah, I can definitely see that being a game changer in in some situations i think most of them have some relative game changing impact Mm. um we've got ritual sight when determining which player has the first turn if your dice result is a one to three you can use this asset if you do both players roll off again (laughs) that's cool Uh, i I, I rolled a one two or three i don't like that we're both gonna roll again nice um Aerial Reconnaissance Pass. After both players have deployed their armies, select up to D3 units from your army, excluding Titanic units, or one Titanic unit from your army, redeploy them anywhere within your deployment zone. They cannot be placed into a location other than the battlefield, and if both players have redeploy units, they will often see you just first. Uh, Redeploys are always powerful. Mm -hmm. Especially for Titanic units, which isn't something you can often redeploy. Command uplink in your first command phase, select a number of infantry units in your army, excluding character units, as specified below, um, to gain the objective secured ability. So depending on the size of the battle you're playing, you can pick one, two, three, or four units for combat patrol, incursion, strike force, mm. etc. So giving obsecs to units that don't normally have it. Yep, can't argue with that. Minefields, each time an enemy unit holding within your deployment zone all within six inches of your deployment zone, advances, roll one additional d6 and discard the highest result. Each time a charge is declared for an enemy unit, if it is a target of... if a target of that charge is wholly within your deployment zone, or within six inches of your deployment zone, roll one additional d6 and discard the highest. In either case, if all dice results are the same, select one result to be discarded. Sure. So basically, then. the enemy cannot move very fast or far if they're in your deployment zone because of the minefields. Mm. Um, intelligence network. 
units from your army can make attacks with ranged weapons or performing actions without failing those actions. Okay. Uh, faithful Resurgence, add one to combat attrition tests taken for units in your army. Each time a model in your army makes a melee attack, if it's a unit made a charge move this turn, you can reroll hit rolls on one. Cool. Um, technological Vaults. In a Crusade mission, you may reveal this Warzone asset, and you can select one from your army. In a Crusade mission, when you reveal this Warzone asset, you can select one unit from your army to gain a weapon enhancement for that battle. You do <laughs> need to adjust this Crusade points value. Once per battle round, you can use a war gear stratagem that your army has access to for zero CP. So I assume Ooh. that's things like the special bolt rounds that all Astartes have. Yeah. Um, things like tank the bombs for orcs. Uh, now a stratagem. Yes, and it probably is a war gear one. But I can check if you like. <laughs> I could check if I like. Oh. Oh, look at us. Two orc players flexing the fact that we got our codexes. <laughs> yep. It's funny though, because the first game that we're both going to play with them is going to be against each other, and funny enough, we could have done it with just one. This is, yeah. <laughs> True. <laughs> um, but yeah, so there's like 17 of these Warzone assets, and they're all going to be doing, you know, significant things. Um, especially when you've got quite a few of them to pick from. And essentially, that's the core essence of what the Chariot on the Flame campaign is, really. The standard 9th edition campaign template, and the extra cool thing they have is this picking of the assets every phase, yeah. and being able to use between one to two of them um, to assist your army. Yeah. It's a, it's a nice level... Uh... Of extra spice on there, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, the the sort of only other thing really that is added to the campaign system is um, the new heroic achievements. And it's funny that I say they're added to the campaign system, but really, this is more for Crusade than right. it is for the core system, um, because. It's basically exactly what you would imagine like a 40k achievements um, bingo card to be like, you know, did, right. did, did this unusual or unlikely thing happen? So, for example, one of them is called All But One. This heroic achievement is completed if at the end of the battle, a unit from your army with a starting strength of 10 or more models has one model remaining, and that model is within your opponent's deployment zone within range of an objective marker that is not within your deployment zone or within engagement range of any enemy units. Nice. So that whole thing of like, you know when that one sergeant just won't die? Yep, it's the classic. <laughs> yeah. Like, that's one of these sort of like, did you achieve it conditions? And um, all of them, there's what? One, two, three. There's 12 of them, potentially, and they're all in play all the time. And you sort of just cross-reference at the end of any campaign game you play to whether or not you achieve one or more of them. Okay. Um, and um, at the end of each battle, each player can select one heroic achievement they completed during the battle. 
they can select one of the following rewards. One of them is that you receive two additional war zone points for your alliance, which is quite significant to be helping to try and achieve victory in that campaign phase for your alliance. Yep. Or the alternative is if the campaign is using crusade forces, a player can receive that heroic achievement's reward. Right. So instead of taking the war zone points, in the example I gave of all but one, <laughs> the reward would be select one unit from your army that completed this heroic achievement. That unit gains a battle on it. Okay. So, uh, I mean, I, I was going to say that game we last played where you had that one Death Shroud Terminator, not Death Shroud, but that one last Blight Lord yep. survived. Fortunately, he wasn't part of a unit that was 10 or more models. But uh, no, you're right. He wasn't. Yeah. For example, had he been, then suddenly your white lords could have just gained a battle on it just because of how that game played out. Because he happened to yeah. be one last standing guy. Yeah. I mean, maybe you might have pushed towards an objective marker just to try and make sure he did it. Yeah. Been but, a bit risky with him. Um. The main thing really is that all of these rewards provide some benefit to you in Crusade. Yes. Or two Warzone points for the campaign. Yeah. I like the uh, the sort of selfish um, temptation there. So I could help my entire force, my entire team, win the, the entire campaign. Or I could make my stuff better. Which theoretically could carry over to like other games if I wanted to. Yeah, it's funny. We saw a little bit of it in the Abolis campaign, but it's more prevalent in this one. That tends to be a theme if you're playing a Crusade campaign. You can either get more personal glory, or you can sacrifice potential war zone points you'd be earning for your alliance yeah. to get those, you know, upgrades, bonuses, and personal advantage. <laughs> um, or you can be, you know, altruistic and give up your battle honor in order to try and push the war zone points for your alliance that phase. But yeah. if, if each alliance has just got one or two people who do that once or twice per phase, that's probably going to lead to, you know, a bit of a lead. <laughs> yeah. Um. So that wouldn't uh, undercut it. I mean, the other thing is there are a couple more stipulations. So, for example, each heroic achievement's reward could only be received once per player. So in subsequent battles, they must select to receive two additional wars on points. Okay, fair enough. And it's not like once per unit, it's like once per order of battle, I guess. Yeah. So you could only achieve all but one once, regardless of how many times you do it in games with how many units. They're achievements, right? You just tick them off. Exactly, hence it's like a bingo card. (laughs) Can you get all 12 of your heroic achievements throughout the duration of the campaign? I mean, some of them are easier than others. (laughs) For example, um, Mighty Duel. Uh, this heroic achievement is completed if an enemy warlord is destroyed as a result of a melee attack made by your warlord. Nice. And I'm sure there have been many a 40k game where exactly that's happened. Uh, yeah, that's also very dependent on your army, isn't it? Somewhat. I mean, your company commander for your guard is less likely to kill Gulliman, for example. <laughs> but yeah. if he happens to spy a Kadra Fireblade, maybe he might try <laughs> for it. 
or an ethereal, uh, you know, <laughs> who knows? Um, but that said, one of the other ones is assassination, which is simply um, if an enemy warlord was destroyed by your warlord, excluding as a result of a melee attack. Huh. So if you shot them or you smited them or did anything that just wasn't killing them with a melee attack. Yeah. Um, or you were a tank commander and you exploded. <laughs> yeah, true, actually. Yeah, that would be a prime example. Superb. Uh, and in the in the case of those two, you would gain either a battle honor or four experience points, respectively. Um, but then some of them are really difficult to achieve. For example, tactical masterclass. This heroic achievement is completed if a player achieves ninety victory points from the mission objectives. Ooh. Basically, a perfect score minus painted. Yeah. Or 80 points. Oh, no, sorry, it's 90 points from the mission objectives. Yeah, so it's, it's perfect score on your actual. Yeah, mission. well, you say that, but the um, the Crusade missions don't have the cap of 100, I don't think. True, uh, so you so could. It's, go, I mean, it's possible to go to over 100. Yeah, so the Crusade. Depending on the mission. Up. Yeah. But the reward for that one, if you don't take the two Warzone points. Is that after the battle, you can select three units to be marked for greatness instead of just Ooh. one. Pretty tasty. Um, and then one other one that was just really funny was Bitter Struggle, which is basically <laughs> both of you just beat the hell out of each other throughout the game. Yep. Been there. At the, yeah. At the end of the battle, each player adds up the total power rating or points, using points, for the units from their army that have not been destroyed. This achievement is completed if the total for each player's remaining army is 10% or less of their starting total. <laughs> Definitely cannot, been there. Yeah, they cannot achieve this if all of their units have been destroyed. Hmm. And the difference in victory points between both players is no more than 10. <laughs> Note this wow. heroic achievement must be completed by both players. <laughs> Nice. To be legible. So you both need to have only 10% of your army left and have a victory point difference of 10 or less points. <laughs> so a real nail biter without yeah. either one of you being tabled in the process. Nice. But the reward for it is that after the battle, each player can select up to three units from their army that have not been destroyed to be marked for greatness. <laughs> Excellent. And yeah, that's. Um, that is heroic achievements. Um, and then one last little bit was that at the end of each campaign phase, the alliance that completed the most heroic achievements as an alliance, not just an individual player, yep. um, earns additional war zone points equal to the total number of players in the opposing alliances. Ooh. So Interesting. Yeah, if you're three teams of four, whichever team... It completes the most heroic achievements that phase, scores an extra eight warzone points. Which, when you consider a victory for a strike force mission, is four warzone points. That's the equivalent of winning two games at 2k. Yeah, it's a big swing. Yeah. So, even if you, you know, even if you're aiming for your crusade rewards rather than your warzone points, still earning the most as an alliance. He's going to earn Warzone points. Yeah. 
Um, so it's it's funny how, like you say, it's kind of like a bingo card because technically all of these are in play every game until you achieve it, at which point then it's ticked off and you can't achieve it again. Yeah. Well, you can still achieve it and get the points for your alliance, right? Uh, yes, sorry, you're correct. Yeah, yeah. You can't get the Crusade reward a second time, yeah. but you could achieve it again to get the Warzone points, and I guess to add to your tally for most heroic achievements. Yes. Yeah. Complete that phase. So if you find one that your army just happened to be really good at doing, you could just do that every game and get extra theory, points. I mean, I imagine that probably kind of will happen, that some will be naturally tended towards um, yeah. repeating it. For example, killing the enemy warlord in melee with your warlord. Yeah, it if, might happen if you've more got often a, than you think. If you've got a big beefy orc warlord, hmm. whatever. Um, and yeah, that's... Uh, that's essentially everything in the uh, Chariot on the Flame campaign. And cool. it does, it is sort of intended to follow on from the Abolis invasion, but it also stands alone quite well. Um, and in fact, if anything, I think this one probably has the best universal application because it's just, it's the standard three phase system. It uses this quite generic war zone asset system yeah without throwing lots of like racial specific things in there um or really twisting the nature of every game in the way that the theaters of war in the obelis system obelis invasion campaign does um and then you've kind of got this bingo card of achievements which to be honest i think would just be quite good to actually have say like up on the wall at your local club <laughs> or something. Could you imagine, like, all eight players or whatever in your campaign? Yeah. You've all got your bingo card, or you've been stamping up how many times you've earned your achievements. Yeah, it definitely seems like it would be quite good to apply to any campaign. I mean, I think it'd be good just for building, like, personal rivalries. Yeah. And uh, the <laughs> there is a crusade mechanic that really leans into that, which we'll get to later on. <laughs> But yeah, that's everything for uh, the campaign proper. So um, we're going to take a quick break and then we'll be back with a review of the legendary missions for the Book of Fire. Are you enjoying the Narrative Wargamer podcast? If you are, why not check out our community Facebook group at Narrative Wargamer on Facebook. We share our latest hobby projects and narrative battles and aim to grow a community for casual and narrative 40k players. We're always excited to see the awesome things our listeners are working on and it is a great place to hang out with other like-minded hobbyists. You can also find us on Instagram at Narrative Wargamer and over on Twitter at Narrative40k for regular hobby updates on our 40k projects. And we're back, guys. So we've got a, a mini-series of mission focuses now. So these are for the latest legendary missions. Um, and these are, again, to represent the sort of keynote events throughout the uh, narrative of the second half of the uh, Charadon invasion um, and the war from Tampa. So previously, I think we had... There was one of the Imperial route, and like, uh, routes, the battle on Fathom, and oh gosh, I can't remember what the third one was. 
Was that the one where everyone was going crazy and basically scattered all across the board on deployment? Might have been. I think it was, because that was when like Entropy was ascendant and Chaos reigned. Oh yeah, and uh, multiple rolls on a silly table of everything goes mad. Yes, and every unit was capable of heroically intervening. <laughs> yeah, that one sounded fun. Yeah. Well, instead, uh, this time we've got Darkness Descends on Colossi, the Return to Fathom, and the Plague Bringer Offensive. So, okay. first up of these is the Darkness Descends on Colossi. So, this is <laughs> this is the drastic last stand of House Raven against Belakor and his disciples, as oh. Colossi itself, which is the planet um, of the home, like the, the I don't know what they call it. It's not a fortress monastery, but like the keep or homeworld of House Raven. Um, uh, yeah. As the planet Glossi is shrouded in malevolent darkness. Um, and the sort of high notes of this is that uh, the darkness basically limits range attacks and removes all abilities and failing morale can cause units to shoot upon themselves. Well. So, uh, deployment uses um, sort of like. What's the best way to describe it? Triangled corners. Okay. Way. Um, so it's it's kind of got like a diagonal no man's land strip yeah. in between um, the board edges, but other than that, it's pretty standard deployment. Um, and we have mission briefing. This mission is inspired by Belakor's attack um, of Colossi's Keeping Violet. If you wish to reenact this horrific. Enact the historical accuracy of this battle, then a player from the Raiders Alliance with an army that includes Bellacor is suited to this mission. However, feel free to use this mission with players as you feel appropriate. Mission rules, objective markers. After choosing deployment zones, the players alternate placing a total of six markers on the battlefield, one at a time, starting with defender. The first two objective markers the first two objective markers each player places must be held within the deployment zone. No more than six minute battle ledge and nine from any other marker. The final objective marker each player places must be more than six inches away from both players' deployment zones and more than six from any table edge, and more than twelve from any other objective marker that is not in the deployment zones. So two at each deployment, two and one each in no man's land. We've got special rules. Unnatural darkness. Each time a model shoots, units that are more than 24 inches away from that model are not eligible targets. Cool. Unearthly howls and whispers. <laughs> At the start of each battle round, if you have less victory points than your opponent, units from your army lose their aura abilities until the end of the battle round and Oof. cannot use any priest abilities, e.g. chaplain's litanies. Or Dark yeah. Apostles' Prayers. Wow. Yeah, it's funny because this is one of the rare instances where it's uh, the rich get richer sort of thing. Yeah. Because it's, if you're losing, you get a debuff. Interesting. Whereas quite often these sort of things are used as a balancing mechanic, whereas if, if you're winning, you get a debuff, giving the opponent a chance to catch up. But I understand narratively this is your morale is breaking. You know, you're losing your mind. The howls and whispers from the darkness are 
taking over they're winning you know and you're just losing your cool so of course you're tilting <laughs> you know you, <laughs> it's gonna get harder which leads to the seeds of sedition each time an enemy unit fails a morale test you can choose sedition if you do one model from that unit does not flee and a combat attrition test is not taken as a result of the failed morale test instead that unit can shoot as if it were the shooting phase, and until its range attacks have been resolved, it is treated as if it were a unit from your army. <laughs> it can target its own unit with ranged attacks. It does not count as being within engagement range of itself. Wow. That's fun. Yeah, right? So yeah, those malevolent whispers are just really causing you to go mad and be convinced that everybody's out to get you and you can't trust your own allies and your own brothers and you know you're paranoid as anything and basically people start turning on each other so can you imagine a unit of space marine hell blasters resolving the shooting phase against itself <laughs> uh. i mean it is when it is only ranged attacks so for example your deathwing terminators are only going to be storm bolting each other yeah that'd be right um, but could you well, imagine... they're not failing morale anyway, are they? Uh, oh, good point, actually. <laughs> no seeds of sedition there, in theory. I guess that makes sense. Um, but imagine if your orc boys of shooters decided to just unload in- into themselves. Yeah, imagine if they were burner boys. <laughs> Brutal. There wouldn't be many shadows left after they were done <laughs> no. panicking. Um, yeah, and then mission objectives um, secure the keep at the end of each place command phase. The player whose turn it is scores five victory points from each objective marker that is not within their deployment zone that they control. Um, so, yeah, the four that are not in your own deployment zone. Uh, this cannot be scored in the first battle round. And Nightmare at the end of the game, each player adds up the total power rating or points values of each unit in their army that has been destroyed. The player with the lowest total scores 10 victory points. So, basically, whoever's killed more of the enemy scores yeah. 10 victory points. Yeah. Uh, and then victory bonus. The victor of this mission increases... Oh, yeah, this is... <laughs> this is ridiculous. Okay. The victor of this mission increases their requisition points to 5. And their warlord okay. gains 4 experience points. Ooh. The player that scored victory points for the Nightmare mission objective selects two units from their army to be marked with greatness instead of just one, even if they were not the victor. <laughs> so if you actually destroyed more but you lost on the victory points, you get you two still get points. Marked greatness. But yeah. nice. again, talk about the rich get richer. Like if you That's win this lot. mission, yeah, if you win this legendary mission, you get to max out to 5 requisition gain 4 experience on your warlord and if you killed more of the enemy than they did of you, you get 2 marked greatness units. I guess that's why it's a legendary mission. Right, yeah, this is so, I can't remember if we mentioned it already, but the idea is that each of these is meant to be played as a like climactic battle scenario at the end of each campaign phase. Yeah, I don't think we did but we it's it was mentioned in one of the previous ones. Yeah, so, a similar thing. Darkness Descends on Colossi is intended to be played at the end of campaign phase one. 
and probably say that week at your club, everyone would pair off with, you know, opponents and play this mission. Right. So you would hope that in theory, across the alliances, you'd probably get a smattering of victors. So you wouldn't just have one alliance who yeah. all suddenly get a ton of requisition points um, and experience, which, in theory, shouldn't even really matter if it does because the crusade system is designed to be balanced if one player has a more yeah. experienced uh, or mm. fueled crusade force and yeah that balancing factor is more command points which I it think kind of is but kind of it. isn't it's better than nothing and I don't think it's a terrible system um, I just haven't played enough imbalanced crusade games yet to know how efficient it is at balancing it yeah, it kind of depends on um, how good your stratagems are in your your army. True. So maybe it's not so beneficial if you're an orc player. Ah, uh, yes. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> but it's probably going to do a fair bit for you if you're Admech. Yes, a lot. Um, speaking of which... The second of these legendary missions is the return to Fathom, so that infamous ocean world that's basically been set up by the Mechanicum to be um, a water extraction plant that never seems to drain away, and oh. has very much been the poster for the Charidon campaign in that every piece of photography, more or less, that they've got has been set on this Fathom <laughs> water rig board they've built at Warhammer World. Yeah, some have built that board and they're very proud of it. Yeah, they are. Which is... Fair. I mean, don't get me wrong, I would love to play a game with it. But yeah. unless it ever becomes one of the feature tables in the gaming hall, which mm. it might do eventually, but it's probably going to be a couple of years away before it does. Yeah. So, if we are returning to Fathom, um, this is the conflict where the Imperial forces corner Lord Zeed on Fathom, aiming to destroy him for good. So he didn't actually get mentioned in the fun facts episode because he wasn't very fun. He's just mean. Ah, basically, Lord Zed is the um, he's a Lord Discordant of the Black Legion who is um, Abaddon's emissary. He's okay. basically the one who's been sent to Typhus to give him his instructions from Abaddon. Right. That that's what Zed does. Right. That's his whole purpose. Um, House Raven have a particular beef with him. Um, and other than that, he basically just rampages around the Charidon, laughing gleefully to himself. Twirling his mustache. Yeah, basically. Very mustache-twirling-esque yeah. villain. Cool. Doesn't do anything significant other than eventually be cornered on Fathom by right. um, Morgan Val herself. Cool, cool. Um, yes, as this mission plays out, there are thunderstorms ravaging the battlefield with lightning strikes and gale force winds, and it's meant to be a, a sort of desperate last battle between hunter and prey. So, yeah. zealous hunters and desperate prey provide different bonuses for both the attacker and defender. Okay. Um, so, mission rules: macro storms. Uh, in fact, actually, before we do that, um, go over the deployment. Go on then. Um, so this deployment map is a long table edgeway chevron. So the attacker has a big pointy spearhead diamond for their deployment zone, and the defender has a a diamond arrow wedge cut out of what would be their rectangular 
Right. Does that make sense? Yes. Yep. To me. <laughs> there are five objective markers in basically an even spread uh, W or M shape, depending which <laughs> way you're looking at the board. Right. Um, with two of them being in the defender's deployment zone and three of them being in no man's land. So it's clearly okay. a, a, an attacker is on the offensive trying to push yeah. into the defender's territory and take these objective markers. So yes, mission rules. Macro storms. Each time a model makes a ranged attack, if it is more than 18 inches away from the target, the target is treated as having the benefits of light cover. In addition, at the start of each battle round, roll d6 and consult the table below. It's our first table. Oh, We managed to what, get... Ooh, we got an hour in before we mentioned the table in a mission. <laughs> um, on a 1-3, to three, we have gusting winds. Roll 1d6 for each unit on the battlefield that includes any models with a strength characteristic of 4 or less. So, most infantry. If the result is higher than the highest strength characteristic of models in that unit, until the end of the battle round, that unit cannot advance, and each time a charge roll is made for it to subtract two from the result. Cool. So, unless you are custodes, <laughs> you're going to have a hard time running around in these um, Gale Force winds. Or Beast Snagger Boys. Oh, Beast Snagger Boys. Ooh. Yeah, Actually, it doing... says the highest strength, doesn't it? Uh, for it's a unit that includes any models with a strength characteristic of four or less. You have yeah. to test four, but you test against the highest individual strength. Yeah, so a unit of orc boys, their strength four, but the knob is strength five. Yeah, so they test against the knob strength, but they do have to be, take the test. They're going to be pretty, um, pretty resilient. Unless on a 4-6 they get hit by a lightning strike. Uh, that would be a problem. Each player rolls 1d6 for each enemy unit on the battlefield, excluding infantry units that contain one model. So, basically not characters. Uh, and yeah, on a or, 6 that... Or the uh, the one guy who's going to tick off your, uh, your like last one <laughs> model achievement. Very true, yeah. He, he's that heroic, he cannot be struck by lightning. Yep. Um, but for anyone else who is unfortunate to have a friend stood by on a six, that unit does suffer two mortal wounds, killing Oof. you and said friend. Yikes. Um, so yeah, you're going to get blown around by the Gale Force winds or struck by lightning. Either way, okay. you're not going to have a good time. No, neither of those are ideal. Um, in addition to this, there are flak batteries. Each time a unit would be set up on the battlefield, unless it is disembarking, it must be set up wholly within the controlling place deployment zone. So basically, no deep striking. Right. Um, yeah. And then we have Zealous Chant. The attacker has the first turn. Okay. Add one to combat attrition tests taken for units in the attacker's army. And each time a model in the attacker's army makes a melee attack, if that unit made a charge with this turn, you can re-roll the hit roll. So Fair pretty enough. much your standard range of um, zealotry sort of ability yes. in 40k. Plus the fact that you get to go first. Yes. Whereas if you are the prey, add one to advance rolls and charge rolls made for units in the defender's army. And units in the Defender's Army are eligible to charge in the turn which they fell back. Oh, okay. Because you are desperately trying to avoid being cornered. That's quite so cool. So suddenly, 
if you've got a bunch of, um, well, I was going to say calm berserkers, they're able to fall back and charge. But then again, if they've got plus one to advance and charge rolls and they're calm berserkers, there's probably not very often they're going to find themselves engaged with something alive at yeah. the end of this. <laughs> but, you know, the ability to fall back and charge is still pretty good. It's very strong. Um, and then mission objectives. Hunter and hunted. At the end of each battle round, each player scores. Points as follows. If one or more enemy units were destroyed during the battle, score three victory points. If more enemy units and friendly units were destroyed, score three victory points. Kill something, kill more. Yep. And secure the rig. At the end of each battle round, each player scores three victory points for each objective marker they control. So, in terms of actual scoring, it's pretty standard. Hold objectives, kill things, kill more. Yep. Job done. But, um, some interesting special rules that will in effect. Yes. And then, finally, the victory bonus. Each unit from the victor's army that destroyed one or more enemy units gains one experience point. If they destroyed three or more enemy units, they are marked for greatness instead. Oh. If any units from the victor's army are marked for greatness in this manner, the victor does not select a unit to be marked for greatness as normal. So you've got the ability to potentially earn multiple marks of greatness if you have multiple things destroy multiple targets. Yeah. But in either case, so long as something kills something, it's going to get an extra XP at the end of the game if you win. Yes. That, so it's kind uh, of that just, could, um, could rack up quite a lot, couldn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting how it's basically a sort of pretty standard 9th edition scoring condition mission, but with some like high rewards at the end of it and a bunch of extra special rules that are basically just changing dynam the dynamics of how the attacker and yeah. defender's army works. I mean, yeah. this could be quite a good mission to basically play twice in a row, but reverse who's the attacker and defender. And see how having your zealous chant versus your predator-prey rule changes how those two armies behave and play out this mission. Yeah. Which is interesting. And although it doesn't technically say it, I suppose it's also implied that this would be quite uh, thematic to play on your Fathom motion board. Yes. Since it's supposed to be taking place on Fathom. Yeah. Um, which, funnily enough, uh, after we recorded that episode where I talked about if anyone has any pictures or knows any examples of where they could play one of these missions over an ocean board setup. There was then a very informative and interesting article on Goonhammer about a game that had been played doing exactly that. All right then, and it, it looked really cool. Like the board setup cool. they had was really nice. These sector mechanic and um, gantries and these um, nice cit citadel hills working as outcrops that come up from the water and all the rest of it, it was really nicely done, and uh, it looked fun to play. So I'm very jealous. <laughs> and then finally, uh, our phase three legendary mission for playing at the very last game at the very end of your Charadon Aflame campaign is the Plaguebringer Offensive. And this is meant to represent Typhus's final push to break into the very heart of Forge of Metallica and infect it with the Nemesis Worm Plague. Ooh. So our deployment zone is uh, short table edges with a 
21-inch No Man's Land. <laughs> sure. Because the attacker has a 12-inch gap between the center line and their deployment zone, and the defender has a 9-inch gap between the center line and their deployment zone. Okay. Um, there are three objective markers. All three of them are in the defender's deployment zone. One of them is basically central because it is 20 inches away from the center of the battlefield and vertically center within the deployment zone. Yeah. This is the alpha objective. Then there are two additional objective markers which are the 9 inches back from the center of the battlefield and 12 inches from the center line. So basically they're at the front center points of the defender's deployment line. Okay. Um, and the, the little things that are different here are morale tests are auto-passed and warlords have an ignore wounds aura and successful data corruption massively debuffs the defender's forces. So, Interesting. This mission is inspired by Typhus's final assault on fabricator general Heptus Clang's Macro Sanctum Primaris upon Metallica. And I say, if you listen to our last episode, you will know some interesting facts about Mr. Fabricator General Heptus Clang. Yes. Um, and you will know that uh, if he's supposedly on this battlefield, then he's probably taking up a decent chunk of it. <laughs> yes. Um, mission rules. Final offensive. Units automatically pass morale tests. This is a do-or-die situation. You know, there is no falling back so no. nobody's running. Nice. Warlord models have the following aura ability for the battle. Victory or death. Each time a model in a friendly unit within 6 inches of this warlord would lose a wound, roll d6. On a 6, that wound is not lost. Cool. So both armies have that 6 inch, 6 up kill pinball around their warlord. Nice. Bombarded battlefield. All area terrain features lose the light cover, heavy cover, and dense cover terrain traits, but gain the difficult ground and obscuring traits. Huh. All, all obstacles lose the light cover and heavy ground traits, but gain the difficult ground and dense cover traits. So basically, changing up how terrain works in this because you're not getting much cover benefit from it, but there's more line of sight obstructing and yeah. more reduced movement. Yeah. Because this is a heavily bombarded battlefield, so there's basically just rubble and craters and ruined vehicles. Yeah. No buildings. Even by the standards of your standard 40k table, this is a heavily bombed out location. Yeah. And everything's on fire, presumably. Mm -hmm. Big plumes of smoke obscuring. Then we have the sort of main mechanics of the narrative. The malevolent code. Units from the attacker's army can perform the following action. Malevolent Code. One infantry unit from your army can start to perform this action at the end of your movement phase if it is within the engagement range of the alpha objective marker. It cannot start this action while there are any enemy units, excluding aircraft and units of the fortification battlefield role, in range of the same objective marker. The action is completed at the end of your turn. If this action is completed, it cannot be performed again. So this okay. is basically Typhus is uh, infecting the core of Metallica with the Nemesis Worm. Right. So, you know, spoilers. 
he does so in the actual narrative. <sighs> um, data corruption. If the malevolent code action is completed for the rest of the battle, units in the defender's army lose all abilities from the final offensive mission rule. So you lose that six inch film of pain aura. Each time the defender would use a stratagem, they must spend one extra command point to use that stratagem, or Ooh. else it has no effect okay. on the command point spent. Tasty. Each time a model in the defender's army makes an attack, subtract one from that attack's hit roll. Oh. It keeps going. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, like I say, if you succeed at completing the data corruption, it is massive debuffs for the defender. It's basically yeah. a uh, an almost you know foregone conclusion that you're going to lose the battle. <laughs> I mean, it sounds like it. Mm-hmm. And that's it for mission rules. So there is no mitigating factor. There's no risk for the attacker. So uh, how how do you win then? What's the what's the scoring? Is it literally just you do that? Kind of. Yeah. So you've got mission objectives: capture the sanctum. At the end of the game, each player scores 20 victory points for each objective marker they control, scoring okay. an additional 20 if they control the alpha objective marker. Right. So, you could in theory draw if one of you holds the alpha but the other holds the other two objective markers. Yeah. Um, malevolent code. If the malevolent code action is completed, the attacker scores 10 victory points. Otherwise, the defender scores 10 victory points. Okay. So that um, would be the tiebreaker in that situation. That would be the tiebreaker in that situation. Yeah. Yes. Or in okay. theory, if nobody holds any objective markers, but the code was yeah. implanted, it would also be cool. the, the victory. Interesting. Victory, um, victory bonus. Uh, the victor of this mission increases their requisition points to five, and their wall gains four experience points. The player that scored the point, the victory points for the malevolent code objective selects two units in an army to be marked for greatness instead of just one, even if they were not the victor. Okay. So again, the... Same as the first one, then. The, yeah, pretty much. If you win the mission, you get lots of crusade um, rewards. If you did win the secondary mission, then you get the, the yeah. back for greatness bonuses. Um, because, yeah, it is very much a... Uh, it's a very tense moment um, in the narrative. In fact, as is very typical of um, the narrative, uh, like 40k law, just that the critical moment is when then they're like, right, bye, we need to hightail it out of here now. <laughs> I mean, it's quite nice to actually Typhus does succeed, you know, yep. in what he's trying to do, but he doesn't get to, you know, like, lord it over, um, you know, he's... Uh, the Imperium, because even though he does manage to infect uh, Metallica with the Nemesis Worm, he has to immediately bail. He's like, right, did what I was coming to do, and we're out of here now, because I'm about to get overwhelmed by Imperial reinforcements. Fair this enough. Was a, this was a do or die. I did it, and now I'm out of here. <laughs> yep. Um, and yeah, that is our legendary missions. I think they would certainly make interesting highlights for, I guess, a, a club night at the end of every month. You know, players play these legendary missions each phase. Yeah. Um, and certainly, I think Plaguebringer Offensive would be an interesting one to hear being played out on you know, like two or three tables around the room at a club night. 
Yeah. Especially if you actually manage to play two players with Death Guard versus Mechanicum. Yeah, it sounds like it would be pretty epic finale. I mean, you could always also do the team everyone up and have one big massive game. That too, yes, because these are they're not specifically tied to a certain scale of game. Um, so you could, in theory, use that as a big multiplayer, like four players aside mission. And yeah. Like, I mean, four players aside works quite well, where you could essentially assign a player to each objective marker and then have one as like the commanding player who's plugging the gaps wherever need be. Yeah. You, your whole job is to defend the left flank. Your whole job is to defend the right. Yeah, that would um, be pretty cool. So yeah, that is the legendary missions. So we will jump over now to our extended crusade rules. Even though we, we've mentioned a couple already in relation to the heroic achievements, but that's kind of an aside to the campaign itself. Whereas there are obviously now a few actual extended crusade rules from this book, so we're going to take a look at those next. You gets listen up now, and listen good. The boss has got a message for you all. It looks like some of the boys have been joining the war before they got themselves a proper pen job. How are you gets supposed to get any proper crumping done without a lucky blue chopper or dead flashy shooter, eh? The boss is going to be breaking heads if he captures any of yous without a proper pen job. So get your ugly hides, tell the paint boy over at Narrative War Painter. He'll fix you up good and proper, you hear me? Narrative War Painter is now open for painting commissions. Specialising in good quality, army-wide standards, you can get a quote today by contacting me at narrativewargamer at gmail.com to discuss any potential hobby projects, and so I can help you conquer your horde of grey plastic. You can also check out examples of my work over on Instagram at narrativewargamer. What did I say? Right, you gits. Get your loot in the truck and zog off to the paint boy. It better be redder and faster when you get back. And make sure to tell them Red Tooth sent you. You might get some extra special. And we're back, guys, to now talk about one of our favourite aspects of 9th edition 40k, and that is, you guessed it, Crusade. Hey. Pretty much becoming the uh, the bread and butter of this podcast these days, which, <laughs> given that it is the premier narrative play format from Games Workshop for Ninth Edition, and this is the Narrative Warrior podcast, I feel it's only appropriate that we talk about Crusade at any and all opportunities. It was inevitable. So the uh, the Book of Fire does introduce some additional Crusade rules, which, as written and mostly intended for use exclusively in the Charon on the Flame campaign. But, as always, I caveat this with the idea that some of these could easily just be applied to any Crusade format that you fancy playing, or even just universally. I mean, the requisitions are kind of tied to it, but things like the insult injury mechanic um, could be applied kind of just generically. So feel free to, you know, Pick and choose these bits for your own Crusade campaigns and games as you see fit. Okay, so what we got? So, we have got a brand new campaign badge. 
So basically, as with the Apollos Invasion, the first time you play a Crusade game in a, any given campaign, in this case, the Charidon Flame campaign, all the units in your, not order of battle, but in your army list for that game, okay. um, gain the um, Charidon Flame campaign badge, in this case, which basically then makes them legible for all these various requisitions and upgrades right. and everything to do with this particular campaign. Okay. Yeah, so it grants some access to taking the unique relics and requisitions, insult to injury, and legendary titles. I'm, sh I'm sure we've talked about it before, but it's quite cool that if you were playing lots of Crusade games and playing through all these campaigns, you might eventually have a, a roster with units with like multiple campaign badges on which would be pretty pretty awesome. I mean, I could just imagine, particularly like Imperial Guard commanders, actually having a little medal, like each <laughs> campaign that they're in. I mean, some yeah. of those like kits. I think the Cadian Command Sprue comes with like a torso piece that's got like three or four medals like sculpted. Yeah. On and you you, you just know that one of those is for the Abolis campaign. One of them's for the Charidon of Flame. One of them yeah. will presumably be for um, Octarius. Mm. <laughs> I mean, only for your commander, though, obviously, because if you're playing Guard Crusade, I feel like you're going to be cycling through your infantry squads quite quickly. Yeah, you don't get uh, veterans; you just get fresh recruits. <laughs> yeah, there's no need to no need to give experience to them. Mm -hmm. Um, so we we've kind of already covered the concepts of the heroic achievements and say that there were 12 of yep. them that are active whenever you play a campaign game um, and after each game you can pick one of them that you managed to achieve um, and if you can pick either the war zone points or crucially in the case of crusade you can pick the rewards so I'm going to go back to them because I'm going to give us one more two examples because I still think they're really fun okay so we mentioned a couple um Ones we hadn't mentioned so far were things like Fortune Favors the Brave. Uh, this achievement is completed if an enemy unit is destroyed as a result of an attack made by a model in your army, and that attack's strength was half or less than the enemy's toughness. So <laughs> if you were that plucky grot who managed to wound a land raider on a six, and you destroyed it as a result, <laughs> Fortune has favored the Brave. I was going to uh, say, is there one for when your grot kills the Terminator? Uh, Unfortunately, not now because your grot is now strength three. Uh, no, they're not. They're, strength, they're only strength two. They're oh, toughness three. They're toughness three. But they're still I'm strength stick. two. Then yes, in that case, yes. If he does kill Terminator or even <laughs> just a Space Marine Scout, yes, <laughs> he is still being fortune. Fortune, fortune has favoured that grot. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, and as a reward, as a reward, you can select one model from your army that completed this achievement. That model's unit gains five experience points because he knows how to nice. stab the next Terminator he finds. <laughs> yeah. Um, we also have psychic domination. Um, this achievement is completed if two or more enemy units are destroyed as a result of psychic powers manifested by one psychic unit from your army. Um. And if you do so, you can select one psychic unit from your army that completed this achievement, and it gains a psychic fortitude. Cool. So your psychic-specific battle honor, basically. 
Um, and then death before defeat. Uh, this achievement is completed if every unit in your army has been destroyed, but you <laughs> scored more victory points from the mission objectives than your opponent. Nice. Um, it does say other than secondary missions if you are playing a match play game. So in the case, you're just trying to earn more zone points for your opponents. So basically, that rare occasion where even though you've been tabled, you win the game because it's 9th edition and you can do that. Yep, love it. After the battle, select the three units from your army. Those units automatically pass their out-of-action tests for this battle <laughs> because as per the requisite, they must have been destroyed. Yep. Uh, and each unit that was part of your army list gains two experience points instead of one for participating oh. in the battle. I guess it would have been an experience. It would have been. Um, you've got bloodied but unbroken. This heroic achievement is completed if at the end of the battle a character unit from your army with one wound remaining is on the battlefield and that unit destroyed one or more enemy units during the nice. Uh, the reward is you select a character that completed this and they gain four experience points. And you can use the Warlord trait requisition on that unit for free, even if it has not gained the rank in that game. Nice. So you get you get a new Warlord trait in recognition of uh, the fact that you were all survived on one wound after killing things. Perfect. Uh, and then finally, we've got Overrun. At the end of the battle, this heroic achievement is completed if every unit from your army, excluding aircraft and units with the fortification battlefield rule, is within your opponent's deployment zone, and there are a minimum of four units from your army within your opponent's <laughs> deployment zone, um, excluding aircraft and fortifications. Which, to be honest, I'd be impressed if you managed to get a fortification battlefield rule unit inside your opponent's deployment zone. <laughs> yeah. Even though... In the new art codex, I have heard people talking about a boss head bunker with the evil son's clan culture because technically it gets plus one movement, making it movement <laughs> one. Amazing. <laughs> Which, in theory, allows it to advance. Excellent. <laughs> but I don't think even those evil sons would be putting their bunkers on wheels. Well, <laughs> I mean, that's just a battle wagon that exists already. <laughs> Pretty much. Oh, now see, now you've just made me think about doing a battle wagon conversion with the big head bunker on the front of it. <sighs> Sorry. <laughs> it makes such a good death roller. <laughs> uh, but anyway, if you do do that, um, every unit from your army within your opponent's deployment zone gains one experience, and you gain one requisition point. Cool. So, returning um, more specifically to our crusade rules... Um, the heroic achievements, while they give you those particular rewards for the units that achieve them from game to game, they also have a bit of an extended effect um, in that they contribute towards legendary titles. Legendary so, titles? Mm-hmm. So, these are basically sort of like an extra tier of campaign reward that can be earned by your characters. So if you remember, at the end of the Obolus Invasion campaign, if you were part of the winning alliance, you got to pick one character who then got a unique battle honor, um, which I think was basically something like 
they got to automatically make one dice roll per game be a six or something like that. Yeah, I remember or, something like that. Yeah, also basically something, auto pass something. Yeah, like once per game for that character, you know. Yeah, um, and you only got that if you had been part of the winning alliance at the end of a yeah. multi-stage campaign. So it's a, a kind of a, a high-end battle honor achievement. So it was a pretty good effect, but you also had to jump through quite a few hoops and play a lot of 40k, you know, to get to it. Yeah. Legendary titles are sim are a similar thing. After you have played your first battle in the Charadon the Flame campaign, you can select one Charadon the Flame character, because they've now got their campaign badge. Yep. A unit from your order of battle. Uh, you can only select a unit that can gain battle ones. So you can basically can special characters. Yeah. Keep a Charadon achievements tally for this unit. Add one to this tally if your army completed one or more heroic achievements during the battle. Once this unit's tally reaches five, it gains the Legend of Charadon keyword, and its tally is removed from its Crusade card. So you need to tick up to five once you do become a Legend of Charadon. At the end of a Charadon the Flame campaign, for each Legend of Charadon unit in your Crusade Force, you can select one of the Legend of Charadon titles listed below provided that that unit has both the correct faction keyword, because basically there's nine of these and they're all, uh, six of them are faction locked. Okay. Um, and the selected title's heroic achievement has been completed by your Crusade Force during the campaign. So you also have to have done the specific achievement associated with this title. Right. That unit gains the title's associated ability and its crusade points are increased by one. A Legend of Charadon title is a battle honor, but it does not count towards units limited six battle honors, and a crusade oh. force cannot contain two units with the same Legend of Charadon title. Okay. So again, that sounds like quite a few hoops to jump through. Yes. End of a campaign, need to have completed five, a minimum of five heroic achievements, and you need to have completed at least a certain specific one associated with the title you're wanting to gain. Yes. And it potentially has to be the correct faction one for you. Yes. So you would think that these would have to be pretty good. I would. Mm -hmm. And some of them, in fact all of them, pretty much are. So three of these are universal are not faction locked. So I'm going to read those first because these are very generically powerful and some of the others are powerful but linked to an intrinsic element of that race right so these three generic ones we've got the charadon salvager so you need to have completed the secure at all costs heroic achievement which i think is about the only one i didn't read out <laughs> so let's return to it again just so we know what we had to do at the end of the battle there are a minimum of four objective markers on the battlefield, and you control every objective marker on the battlefield. Oh, okay. So you have to control all of them, but it has to be a mission with at least four. Mm -hmm. And funnily enough, the individual reward would have been um, for each objective marker you control, select one unit from the army in range of it, they gain an experience, and you gain a record point. Cool. Yep. So Fine. if you've done that as one of your five successful achievements, you could pick 
your one of your characters and give them uh, Charadon Salvager. At the end of each battle in which this unit was part of your Crusade army, if you won the battle, you can use the Relic Requisition once without spending any Requisition points. Oof. Free Relics. Yeah, every okay. game you win. That's, that's, have a free relic. That's, uh, yep, okay. I mean, mm -hmm. that's pretty strong. Mm -hmm. right. Second one. Lord of Algamax. This you need to have completed the overrun achievement, so the one where basically you've got most of, if not all, your army in your, in your opponent's deployment yep. zone. At the end of each battle in which this unit was part of your crusade army, if you won the battle, increase your supply limits by one. Okay. At the end of each battle in which this unit was part of your crusade army, roll 1d6, adding 2 to the result if you won the battle. On a 6+, plus, or 4+, plus if you win, you gain one requisition point. Nice. Or then you've got the Chromoid Raider, which you need to have completed the Fortune Favors the Brave. So if you're Plucky Grot, yep. stabbed that Terminator. <laughs> yeah, no at the end of yeah, so then at the end of each battle in which this character was part of your Crusade army, roll 1d6, adding 2 to the result if you won. On a 6+, plus, or 4+, plus, if you won, you can select one additional unit from your army to be marked for greatness. Nice. So they kind of, they're all Crusade abilities that basically um, proliferate your further Crusade rewards for winning games. Yeah. It's cool. I like it. Then we've got six um, racial-specific ones, which are for uh, Chaos Demons or Heretic Astartes, then or for Death Guard, or for Chaos, or for Imperium, or Imperial Knights, or Adaptus Mechanicus. Cool. So some of the key players in this conflict, basically. And it's funny how to say that, obviously, this is a campaign supplement book. Some of these get into the specifics of these races. So, for example, the Traveler's Vector, which is the Death Guard only legendary title. If you completed the all but one achievement, so having that unit yep. reduced to one member, um, you can select Charadon of Flame Death Guard character. Add one inch to the range of any contagion abilities this unit has. Okay. Which obviously is the natural contagion for a Death Guard, plus the fact that if it's a Crusade force, that means all your fancy um, yeah, you virulent could, plagues. Theoretically, I think you could have yeah, like multiple contagions if you have the uh, the the Crusade one, or or you might have the um, uh, the Plague Company specific ones as well. Mm -hmm. But yeah, and useful. and at the end of each battle in which this unit was part of your Crusade army. If you won the battle, roll a d6. On a 5+, plus, you gain one virulence point. Nice. So the um, the Death Guard specific resource for playing Crusade, being able to then manipulate all their various contagions. Yeah. So you can see how that is going to be really useful to a Death Guard Crusade force. Yeah. Um, and then we've... Uh, another example, we've got the Majos... Um, Panachium, so a Mechanicum Gizmo Gadget, <laughs> um, which you have to have completed the Bitter Struggle, so the one where basically both of you are at 10% or less strength and you had a really close game result. 
Nice. Adeptus Mechanicus unit only. If this model is included in your Crusade Force, when you are selecting agendas, you can select one additional agenda. Ooh. This must be the Break the Seals agenda from Codex Adeptus Mechanicus. This can be selected even if you have selected another Adeptus Mechanicus agenda. That's that's very interesting. Now I assume, I can't remember off the top of my head, but I'm assuming Break the Seals is one of the ones that would give you an Archaeotech point. Yes. So you could take that in conjunction with the other Mechanicum-specific yes. agenda to also earn another Archaeotech point. Yes, that is, uh, that's exactly what I would do. Mm-hmm. So it's funny how some of these just really, really build on what that faction does, if it is a faction. Um, yeah. Specific one. Um, so then the last one I'm going to read out is the uh, Liberator Ferial, because this is the one that you have to achieve the Tactical Masterclass. So the 90 plus victory points. Yes. Uh, in order to give this to an Imperium unit only. Okay. Once per battle, if this model is on the battlefield, when you select either a Battle Tactic or strategic ploy stratagem, that stratagem costs zero CP. Ooh, this nice. cannot be used in conjunction with any other ability that reduces CP cost of stratagem. So you you know you fight twice as you fight on death, your redeploys, you know basically anything that isn't to do with um, army construction, pretty much. Yeah. Well yeah. free stratagem is always good. Yeah, especially if you're gonna go for an expensive one. Yes you would, wouldn't you? That's the legendary titles. Yep. So now that we've covered um, all of the campaign specific mechanics relating to Crusade, um, we can quickly go over the four additional requisitions that are in here. Okay. Which are basically tied to each of these. So you've got Heroic Victory. So for one requisition point, purchase this requisition after you've won a Charadon a Flame campaign. Uh, so not our campaign. After you've won a Charred on a Flame campaign battle, yep, uh, you can select two heroic achievements instead of one. If you completed both the associated deeds that battle, um, each was achieved by a different unit from your army, right. and you have not received either of the heroic rewards before you receive both rewards. So if on your bingo card you would tick off two things, you can spend one requisition to tick off two things. Rather than just yes, that's cool. Um, further the war effort for one requisition point uh, use this just before you play your Charred on the Flame campaign the asset requisition stratagem costs you 0 CP so okay. the one that lets you use the second war zone asset for that game you can spend one requisition rather than 3 CP which if you're hev leaning heavily into making sure that your faction wins the campaign at your local club and you want those bragging rights it might be worth it for one requisition point. Yeah. Then we've got the legendary exploits, which for one requisition point basically means that if you haven't currently got a Charadon of Flame character with a heroic tally, because you've already hit a max of five and therefore you remove the tally, yep. you can pick a second character in your order of battle and start a tally mm. for them. Okay. So that's how you can end up at the end of a campaign with multiple Legends of Charadon. Yeah. And end up with multiple characters getting these legendary titles. And then finally, one of the requisitions which I think 
is a fun concept and links it to the previous campaign. You've actually got the requisition Obolus Veterans for two requisition points. Okay. Purchase this requisition after a Charadon Aflame battle when a Charadon Aflame unit that also has the Obolus Invasion keyword, so your <laughs> previous campaign badge from your yep. previous campaign, gains a battle honor. You can select a battle honor for that unit from the Obolus Invasion Crusade rules in from the Book of Rust as if you had just played an Obolus Invasion campaign. So do you remember when you could get those unique like weapon enhancements or mechanical units? Yes. It basically allows you to That's retroactively cool. gain that for them in the second part of the campaign because they were veterans from the first part. Yeah, that's cool. And it's just a nice little tying together of the two campaign systems. Again, it's it's cool to have that concept of units being veterans of multiple campaigns and having the sort of the keywords and the effects to show for it. Um, and then, as with uh, most of these expansions, we've got a couple of additional relics. Um, so we've got a couple of antiquity relics. Um, so we've got the Crown of Shadows for Chaos Infantry models, the Aegis Indomitus for Imperium Infantry, and the Worm's Bite for basically non-Imperium, non-Chaos. So one relic per alliance, basically. Okay. Um, Crown of Shadows. Once per battle in your command phase, select Chaos unit um, within 9 inches of the bearer until the start of your next command phase. Each time a model in that unit makes an attack, you can re-roll the hit roll and you can re-roll the wound roll. So it's a uh, it's a Primark buff. Nice. <laughs> you designate to a unit of 9. Primark uh, the Aegis... Yeah, Primark hat. Uh, the Aegis Indomitus, the bearer has a 4 plus invun. Each time the bearer would lose a wound as a result of a mortal wound, and the 4 plus hit is not lost. So, a fancy iron hero. Yep. Cool. And the worm's bite. Each time the bearer makes a melee attack against an enemy vehicle unit, add one to the attack's wound roll. If one or more melee attacks made by the bearer are allocated to an enemy vehicle model whose characteristics can change as a result of suffering damage, after the bearer has resolved all of its attacks, roll 3d6. If the result exceeds the leadership characteristic of the enemy vehicle, then until the end of the battle, that model is infected with scrap code. Nice. While the model is infected with scrap code, it must have its current number of wounds when determining what characteristics it uses. Interesting. <laughs> so, yeah, that's... You know, injure a vehicle and there's a chance it's going to become heavily degraded before it gets killed. Yeah. And then there's a new category of relics, which is the recovered relics. So... Recovered relics are a new category of crusade relics that once belonged to legendary heroes and villains who perished during the Warzone Charadon campaign. <laughs> Recovered means looted. A Charadon Aflame character model that battled hard and rank or higher can be given one of the following recovered relics instead of one of the crusade relics presented in the core rulebook. Recovered relics can only be given to a model at the end of a battle that is part of Phase 3 of a Charadon of Flame campaign. Each time such a relic is given to a model in your Crusade Force, the Warzone points you contribute to your alliance for that battle is reduced by 1 to a minimum of 0. 
So this is another instance of giving up Warzone points in exchange for personal yep. glory. So we've got um, Tetrian's Logicator Cortex. So Tetrian's basically the uh, the famous Skatari Marshal that was uh, battling on Metallica. And uh, Typhus lopped his head off. Well, yep, um, there you go. Adeptus Mechanicus Infantry Model Only. Each time you use a battle tactic or strategic stratagem, if the bearer is on the battlefield and a 4+, you gain one command point, irrespective of the cost of the stratagem used. Nice. We've got Acrofzid's Eyes. <laughs> These twitching lenses are rumoured to be the recovered bionic eyes of Acrofzid. Whatever the truth, they constantly search the shadows for hidden foes and glow blood-red in warning whenever they detect a new quarry. <laughs> Chaos infantry model only. Enemy units that are set up on the battlefield as reinforcements cannot be set up in torrent of the bearer. It's a scrambler. Nice. Nice. We've got the Blade of Purity, which we actually discussed on last episode, as it is the blade that was wielded by Canonist Joghild as she injured Typhus with her holy blessed weapon. Yes, we did. Um, so we've mentioned that one already. It's a fancy power sword that uh, <laughs> makes characters more likely to fail their out-of-action tests. Oh, yeah. And then, do you remember uh, Mr. Plague Captain Oglossmus Bilge? Oh, but of course. The one who was eventually blown apart by Orc Kill Cruiser Fire as his uh, ship, as his plague ship, was blown out of orbit. Yep. Well, um, funnily enough, I never mentioned it in the fun facts episode. But the reason why he's a plague captain uh, of a plague ship is because he's actually fused with the deck of his ship. <laughs> Obviously. <laughs> um, so this is the bilge blade. When the plague captain. A Glossmus bilge was first transformed into a fleshy mound fused to the deck of his ship. His sword was subsumed into his heaving mass. Delightful. After his death, the weapon was recovered by a pact of nerglings, who were delighted to see how the captain's virulent foulness had soaked into the weapon. So this is a Nurgle infantry model with power sword, hellforge sword, bill sword, or, power, or plague sword. This really nice. replaces their sword of choice. It is plus some strength, AP minus three, damage one, which I believe is basically a power sword. Yep. But each time an attack is made of this weapon, re-roll a wound roll of a one. So it's a plague power sword. Yep. Each time a successful wound roll is made of this weapon, the target suffers one mortal wound and the attack sequence ends. Okay. If an attack made of this weapon destroys an enemy character unit, Subtract one from that character's out-of-action test. At the end of that. Okay. It's, it's a power sword that uh, bypasses into mortal wounds if it yes. successfully wounds. Nice. Which is fun. Yeah. So there's a couple of fancy, unique relics tied to the lore of um, the Charadon sector with some fun abilities there, which are basically as rewards for your characters to pick up if they've finished playing in a Charadon Aflame campaign. That's cool. Finally, 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 for our Crusade rules, because there is one more bit to go through, and that is the insult injury mechanic, which this is one which, again, technically is tied to one of these Charadon campaigns, but I feel like you could implement um, in any sort of Crusade environment, but I would 
suggest one in particular where you're playing against regular repeated opponents as opposed to a random pick-up-and-play crusade game with someone you've met for the first time. So more building on this idea of building friendly rivalries and competitions between your little circle of crusade players. Because as the name suggests, this is very much insult to injury. (laughs) During a Charadon Aflame campaign, if a Aflame warlord fails an out-of-action test after a battle that you lost. So, I mean, that's relatively conditional. You have to both lose and then roll a one on your out-of-action test. Yep. Assuming you haven't been stabbed by the bilge blade or the blade of purity. <laughs> yeah. Um, your opponent can choose to spend one requisition point in order to add insult to injury. <laughs> If they do, your opponent selects one of the results to the right, which you must note on your order of battle. Your opponent then gains the listed reward, and your warlord gains a score to settle as a special rule. And your warlord automatically gains the associated battle scar instead of applying any other battle scar or devastating blow. Your warlord will gain this battle scar even if it already has six battle scars. I'm not aware of anyone who has six battle scars and is not already a dreadnought. Can you imagine? (laughs) Furthermore, you will not be able to remove this battle scar via the repair and recuperate requisition or by any other means, such as scrap for orcs if you happen to be a warlord vehicle. Possible. Um, Until after the associated recovery condition has been satisfied. Once the recovery condition has been satisfied, you can use such rules to remove the battle scar if you wish as normal. Note that while an insult to injury result can only be applied during a Charadon Flame campaign, which, you know, I don't think you have to strictly stick to, but that's how it's written. Sure, yep. Any crusade battle counts towards the recovery condition, and a score to settle can also be used outside of the campaign too. Yeah. So we're going to get to all those in a second. A Crusade Force cannot suffer the same insult to injury result more than once. If you already have suffered all three results, then you must resolve the Warlord's failed out-of-action test as normal. So at least you can only be affected by each of these ones. (laughs) So, um, so we've got three instances that your opponent can pick and it costs a requisition to inflict this insult on your injured Warlord. The first one is a Grievous Wound. The wound simply refuses to heal. Only rest without further injury or perhaps divine intervention will allow it to close at last. So the victor that just beat you, the unit that destroyed this warlord during the battle gains five bonus experience points. Oh, nice. Um, Your warlord's battle scar is that you subtract one from the strength and attack characteristics models in this unit to a minimum of one. Ouch. And your recovery condition is that you increase this unit's battles survived tally by three or more. Right. So if you manage to then survive three more games down the line, you've not died long enough to recover from this injury. (laughs) Excellent. It it doesn't say they have to be concurrent either. It just has to be three more battles eventually, which I survived. (laughs) Um... The second option is Disgraceful Defeat. Such was the dire nature of your defeat that news of your opponent's magnificent victory has resounded across the war zone, emboldening the enemy's resolve. The victor's reward is that they gain D3 additional war zone points for their alliance. 
Okay. The loser's battle scar is if this unit is included in a crusade army, roll 1d6 each time you gain a command point as a result of the battle forged CP bonus. Oh. <laughs> On a 1 or a 2, the command point is lost. Ouch. So you're liable to starting with a few less CP, potentially. Your recovery condition is increase your Crusade Forces Battles 1 tally by 3 or more. <laughs> you need to prove that you are not down and beaten. And then this next one is one where I'm glad that these could only be affected on you once, because I think this is a pretty steep loser's battle scare. But this is the opportunistic raid. While your forces were leaderless and occupied, trying to save your life, the enemy took advantage <laughs> and raided vital supply lines, which must now be rebuilt. The victor's reward is that they gain D3 plus 1 additional requisition points. They obviously have the plus 1 being offsetting the fact it cost them 1 to do this. Yeah. So they're basically gaining D3 requisition. The loser's battle scar is that while this model is in your crusade force, so the army that you bring to the table, Roll 1d6 each time you gain a requisition point. On a 1 to 2, that requisition point is lost. Oof. Right? And the recovery condition, purchase this requisition, rebuild supply lines, two requisition points, purchase this requisition at any time to satisfy opportunistic <laughs> readers' recovery condition. So, realistically... You're more or less not going to be including this person, this character, in your future games until you've spent two requisition points to no. heal him. Yeah. So there's an interesting selection of, you know, rewards and injuries that are inflicted there. But one of the reasons why I think this is a fun little system to use between a seasoned group of Crusade players who all know each other's armies and wars, have vendettas to settle and grudges to make. Is because you'll remember that time that, you know, your mate took your warlord down and then he failed his role, and then they made you subtract one from his strength and attacks characteristic, and then you played at least three games with your warlord, you know, weaker and enfeebled, and you'll remember having those struggles, you know, trying to make sure that he survives those games to recover, and you are going to literally have a score to settle with your mate that did that to you. Quite. Which is represented by the Escort to Settle special rule, which your injured <laughs> warlord will have while he is injured. I like that, good length. Each time a unit from your Crusade Force gains a battle scar as a result of insult to injury, if it was destroyed by an enemy unit, make a note on your unit's Crusade card of the enemy unit that destroyed it. Yep. So that that particular unit of Blade Guard veterans, or um, Havocs, or Demon Prince, or whatever. Yep. Your unit has a vendetta against that enemy unit. <laughs> Until this vendetta is resolved, each time a melee attack is made by a model in your unit with this vendetta against the enemy unit, so in future games, add one to that attack's hit roll and add one to that attack's wound roll. Yep. So he, your warlord Pretty is pissed. Angry. Yeah. Pretty pissed at the uh, thing that injured him last time. If your unit with this vendetta ever destroys that enemy unit, then it gains 5 experience points. Ooh. It gains d6 plus 5 experience points instead if it destroyed it with a melee attack. Nice. 
and your unit no longer has a vendetta against that enemy unit. Having a score to settle does not affect a unit crusade points. Ah. So That's essentially, awesome. if your warlord is having to suffer through an insult to injury, he'll have a, a battle scar and a condition to meet to be able to heal himself of that scar. And he will also really hate the thing that injured him in the first place. Oh, okay. Until such time as he has killed it at least once. <laughs> uh, and those two things kind of uh, attract separately. So you could heal from your injury and still have your vendetta if you've yet to destroy that enemy unit. Yep. Or you could destroy that unit in your next game and still be waiting to heal your injury. But you've at least sated your vendetta. And apart from the fact that one of the um, victor bonuses is war zone points, I can see you know these being quite useful for just any crusade games played between friends yeah. and close group. Yeah, I think you could easily apply that to pretty much any kind of campaign system or or you know series of games. I think this definitely feels like the first essence of expanded crusade rules that really only feels applicable to a close group of friends who've been playing Crusade together for an extended period of time and are looking for something to add to their Crusade experience. Yeah. Rather than being a, this is just a cool new addition to Crusade as a whole. Yeah. If you've already the, gone through everything in the rulebook and everything in your codex, then... Yeah, if you've already got your um, wah boss who's got his max additional wounds and strength and Six battle honors, and he's wielding the chopper of the great war. Hey, we have we haven't done that one yet. We <laughs> well, I'm too excited about it. I cannot wait to start <laughs> getting there. So uh, it will be coming up in a future episode. I'm sure it will. We've got one more thing to cover before we've gone through everything in this book because I do want to go over the disciples of Bellador because I think it is a very interesting outlook. Sure. Are you happy, Dan, to yeah. hang in there with me for a little longer? Let's as, power on. Uh, yeah, as I finish rambling at you for the evening. Because I'm, I'm very aware that since you don't have the book to read from yourself, this <laughs> has been mostly an episode of me talking at you. Yep. So thank you very much for being here and letting the listeners uh, have someone for me to relay this information to. <laughs> so we'll be back in a second, guys, with uh, our disciples of Bellator. Welcome back to what is hopefully the last part of the show, pretty much, because <laughs> we've been through a lot tonight, and for those dedicated enough, you can possibly become a disciple of Bellacor, it would seem. <laughs> <laughs> so we've talked about all the various things that can be run through the Charidon campaigns, all the new crusade goodness that's available, and we've already decidedly not bothered to talk about the you know um, Order of our Martin Lady or the Centauri veteran cohorts or even the fact that there's all the um, extended rules for the various heretic Astartes yep. uh, forces in here which are just useful reprints of the information that I believe is not available in print it's, elsewhere uh, it's, yeah it's from Psychic Awakening and uh, Vigilus books uh, yeah. but it's, but it's reprinted and FAQ'd effectively. 
yeah, so you know, it's useful that it's there, but you know. Yeah, it's not an extra wound, is it? It's not yet. <laughs> um, but what we do have is uh, another new army of renown in here, which is the Disciples of Belakor. And we are going to talk about this one because it, it's a very unusual army structure, certainly for the current 9th edition chaos environment. Yeah, it's very interesting. Yeah, so uh, basically in short, this is the is the followers of Belakor, so it's atypically a chaos undivided force, which it, to us it's a little unclear as to whether or not you actually have to have Belakor in it in order for it to legally be a Disciples of Belakor army. The only information is that your warlord must be Belakor as a sentence. Full stop. That's it. Yeah. Well, so, that's, that's fairly clear. I mean, yeah, it implies that Belakor has to be there to be your warlord, I guess. But for me personally, I think it'd be fine if someone wanted to play a combat patrol or um, <laughs> yeah. incursion level game without bringing Belakor to it. It'd be a bit harsh, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, Obviously, this book also includes Bellicor's own data sheet, and it's fair to say he's an absolute monster. You know, yeah. I'm not going to go in full into detail with him, but basically, he's so much more than what the Demon Prince generically is currently. If anything, he's more on par with the Greater Demon, so he's really the Greater Demon of Undivided. Also, yeah. he's a Demon Prince. <laughs> he, yeah, he's a big beast. He is a big old beast. So, if you're going to have a Disciples of Belakor army, the uh, core restrictions involved are that one, Belakor must, you know, in air quotes, be your warlord. Yep. Um, you cannot include any other named characters or Demon Prince models. Yep. You know, Belakor doesn't share power. Nope. Uh, you can't have any greater demons, because again, they are too highly esteemed in the you know, uh, eyes of the gods to be competing with Belakor. Uh, and you're not allowed any Demon Engine, Chaos Knight, Titanicus, Traitorus, <laughs> or God-specific Heretic Astartes units. Just so in anything... case you, you wanted to bring that Chaos Reaver Titan. Right. Sorry. So, basically these restrictions fall down to your army's going to be a combined force of demons and undivided Chaos Space Marines. Yeah. Um, so you can't have Chaos Knights, you can't have Titans, you can't have Greater Demons. Yep. nor can you have thousand suns or world eaters or yep. plague marines or anything that's specifically dedicated to a god quite um, and the only other sort of balancing restriction in your army structure is that in the case of the demon units you need to have an even spread of the representation of each of the gods before you can add additional units so your first four demon units would have to be a corn, Nurgle, Singe, and yeah. unit before you could add a fifth unit, which could be any of them. But your sixth unit would then couldn't be the same alliance as your fifth. If that makes yeah. sense. Which builds into this concept of the chaos and divided force. Now that doesn't apply to the Astartes units because they do technically have a mark of chaos, and you can have um, like a squad of chaos screens with a mark of Sunesh. Right. And another squad that has the mark of corn, they don't um, provide a slot, as it were, you know, for this no. alliance system. It has to be 
and the demons drawn from the chaos, uh, chaos demon codex. Yeah. So, it sounds more complicated than it is, but basically, if you imagine anything that is an undivided chaos unit, if it's not a demon engine, you can take it. Yeah. Does that make sense? Would you say that's about right? Yeah, it's so it's basically with uh, with some restrictions, the majority of the Demon Codex and the Chaos Basement Codex. Yeah, I mean, in the law, um, it's actually an alliance of Wound Bearers and Alpha Legion that um, make up the Disciples. So, obviously, those are two Stati's legions that are undivided legions. Yeah. Um, but you could equally have Night Lords, Iron Warriors, Black Legion, so yeah. on. So you get a few benefits, obviously, um, if you're a disciple of Bellacor. So basically, you get a bunch of keyword changes that means you're not a member of your original legion. You are uh-huh. instead a disciple of Bellacor, so you're not getting Alpha Legion with their stealthy tactics or word bearers with their enhanced morale, leadership, and demon summoning. Yeah. Because instead, you're benefiting from the Disciples of Shadow keyword abilities. So if you're in a Startees unit in this force, then each time you make a combat attrition test, you add one to the test result, which basically means well, you can't suffer casualties until you're under half strength. Uh, maybe? Yeah, because it's one of these odd ones where I don't think rolling a one is still a fail, if that makes sense. Yeah, I don't know. Because if you're... Yeah, so it's each time a combat attrition test, so not morale, so you can still fail morale and have your initial one guy flee. Yep. But each time a combat attrition test is taken by this unit, add one to the attrition test result. So if yep. you roll a one, it becomes a two. Yeah. Which means you can't flee until you're under half strength, at which point you're a natural minus one. So that yep. it offsets and it's a natural dice roll. And if you roll a one, you would then flee. Yeah. So it makes them. Um, less prone to morale. It's fairly handy. And each time a ranged attack targets a unit, this unit, if the attacker is more than 12 inches away, subtracts one from hit roll. Yeah. Which is pretty good because it's not just your light cover that you typically get from these sorts of abilities. It's if you're over 12 inch, minus one to be hit. Yeah. Uh, classic <laughs> Alpha Legion. I wonder, if, uh, of, I wonder if that is. If those two traits are parts of what the Alpha Legion and the Word Bearers will get in the new Chaos Codex. Yeah, it's funny actually that you mentioned that because obviously just before I said this, you know, like the Word Bearers were known and their trait is that they're better at morale, and mm-hmm. half of this is combat attrition and the other half is um, yeah. hit rolls at range, which is the Alpha Legion trait. It sounds like it is very much a combination of those two. I hadn't picked up on that. Mm. Hmm. Narrative, you That's see. Interesting. <laughs> um, but then on the flip side of that if you're a demonic disciple unit um, you basically get a different locus so yes. it, um, whereas chaos demons the units themselves don't gain a benefit but all their characters gain an aura based on their god's yeah. bonus which because you're replacing it with Bellacor's bonus instead um, if you've got a herald of corn and a herald of zinch they both have the locus of shadow rather than the respective locus of their gods yes uh, my understanding is that that affects all the units with the keyword so you can have for instance like a herald of corn affecting a unit of demonettes with it or whatever yes because in this case their actual patron demon is Bellacor as opposed to yeah. their patron god so they are actually 
funnily enough, working in coherency, even though it's core neatness slash D. Yeah. Um, but this uh, aura is a six-inch aura for this model. Uh, while a friendly demonic disciples unit is within six inch of this model, each time a range attack is made against this unit, your opponent cannot re-roll the hit roll, and if they're more than twelve inches away, subtract one from the attacker's hit roll. So, as I mean, I think that's huge with demons because chaos demons are one of my other actual armies that I've played over the years, and I would have loved to have a minus one to be hit <laughs> locust. Yeah, you know, for any of the gods, um, rather than the usual plus one strength that it normally yeah. Um That's huge for demon units. When the majority of them are obviously trying to close the distance with enemies and trying to avoid getting shot as much as possible. No hit rerolls against me and minus one's hit up 12 inch. Yes, please. Yes, definitely. Um, so you get some pretty good you know, Legion traits slash locus abilities. Uh, and in addition, there is a new psychic table available to all psycho units um, in a Disciples of Bella course, so be it your sorcerers or your demonic heralds or Yep. Anything and everything. I mean, it says disciples of Bellacore psychers in your army can generate psychic powers from the Noctic discipline. Um, so, if for example you were a herald of Zamish, you could still take the, the discipline of change or whatever it is in the demon book yeah. if you wanted. You, <laughs> Bellacore isn't so draconian with you that you have to use his psychic <laughs> discipline. But you're probably gonna in some cases because it's a pretty cool um, discipline. So, there's one or two examples we'll just go through. I mean, um, the Shrouded Step is basically the jump. Nice. So, uh, I mean, I think it's really interesting where some of these obviously allow that cross selection between the demon and non demonic units. So, the descriptions are things like if manifested, select one friendly disciples of Bellicor infantry unit within 18 inches of this psyker. So, yeah. that could be. A demonic herald picks a unit of chaos terminators. Exactly. It could be a chaos sorcerer picks a unit of corn blood crushers. You know, this interplay between units, which is not normally there because typically the heretic Astartes powers will state they have to target yeah. Astartes units. The demon powers will typically state they have to target demon units. Yeah. Um, and you've got a a few interesting powers. There's one. Um, is it. Riven in. Reaved in Shades. Um, select a friendly Disciples of Bellacore unit, excluding monster or vehicle within 12 inch Psyker. Until the start of your next Psychic phase, enemy models cannot target that unit with ranged weapons unless that unit is the closest eligible target to the firing model or it is within 12 inches of the firing model. So again, more of this sort of like twelve-inch rule for you know um, obfuscating abilities that hide your units from the enemy. Yeah, you know, being the Lord of Shadows and all, it makes sense for Bellicor's disciplines and abilities to basically resolve around this whole obstruction and misdirection. It's very thematic. And then you also get things like Betraying Shades, which is just a crazy witch fire. <laughs> ability um, you pick an enemy unit with 18 inches you select up to 6 models in a unit you add together the total number of unmodified attack characteristics of those models roll a dice for each of them um, 
and for each uh, result of a six, is it? It breaks a mortal wound, or if you rolled an eleven plus on the psychic test, it's a five plus. Oof. But the idea of you know, it's meant to be um, the shadows of those fighters, basically, you know, raising yeah. up out of the ground in any style of video game you've ever seen, where you have to fight a mirror version of yourself. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Um, so hence, the better fighter you are, the more attacks you're gonna have to fend off. It's just a, a rather convoluted but surprisingly effective way of inflicting mortal wounds on certain units. You know, yeah. not going to do a huge amount to a unit of gaunts, really. But if you use that on something like Blade Guard, mm-hmm. um, it's going to do quite a bit of damage. <sighs> Orc boys. Then we've got a Warlord Tree, which is a Shadow Lord, which is basic law. Basically, oh look, Belakor is a chapter master. It's yeah. a, a battle core disciple unit, gives it chapter faster benefits. That's pretty handy. Um, this, I think, is one of those small arguments to say that um, Bellacore doesn't necessarily have to be in your army because it says if Bellacore is your ward, he must have the ward trait on them. And the trait itself just says um, select a friendly unit mm. in range of this warlord. It doesn't say within range of Bellacore. Do you know what I mean? So, like, yeah. You could, in theory, have a small Disciples force that doesn't have Bellacore on the field, and the Shadow Lord could be a Warlord trait for that Disciple. Yeah. I don't see any reason why, you know, this army of renown should be forced to be played in 2K games only, because it needs yeah. to have the big beating. I mean, I think even the Terminus Est Assault force, it just says Typhus is optional, but if he's in there, he has to be the Warlord. Yeah, I think so. And then, finally, we have a couple of stratagems, which I want to touch on one or two that specifically touch on this concept of the Chaos Undivided you know, alliances and the pacts between mortals and demons, which I think really comes across neatly in this army of renown, and is one of the aspects of Chaos that I think is not represented too often you know, on the actual tabletop. And it's one of the reasons why I really like this formation. Yep. So for one, for example, we've got the Shadow Pact for one CP. Um, use the stratagem in your command phase. Select one Mark of Chaos Legion Disciples Infantry <laughs> Infantry Unit from your army that has not dedicated itself to a specific Dark God. So this would be your squad of you know Chaos Space Marines who've taken uh, Chaos Undividers as their mark, as opposed yeah. to Mark of Sinesh or Khan or whatever. Yeah. Then select one of the packs below. Until the start of your next command phase, the unit has that pact, and it's basically a, a god-affiliated buff. So you've got Pact of Blood, plus one to the attacks characteristics, Pact of Fate, Fire of Binvon, Pact of Plague, plus one to Toughness, Pact of Excess, plus one to Movement, in addition, plus one to Advance and Charge. So cool. the fact that your undivided unit can actually call upon the multitude powers of the Pantheon mm-hmm. For one CP a time for that battle round, yeah, and start the game. Would plus one toughness or a fire pin but help me survive? At, in round two or three, would the plus one movement to advance and charge help me get into combat? And so once I'm uh, there, would the extra attacks help? Here's a thought: Do you think those stat boosts represent what the chaos marks will do in the new codex when that comes out? I mean. I'm going to say probably not simply because <laughs> um, I think what's been quite clever about all this is this whole 
army of renown seems to be future proofed yeah nothing in here seems to be tied to any specific wordings or mechanics or at least ones that are likely to change such as you know units with mark of chaos um in future chaos books so it's it would be duplicating that effect and you would lose the 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 benefit of this stratagem if that was the case well the the benefit of the stratagem would be that you could pick it as is oh right. right that's what you're saying yeah so if you've if you've added a unit of chaos marines to your army that specifically has the mark of sunesh then they would always have plus one to their movement yeah. advance and charge but if you pick a unit that's undivided then you can bounce between these using this stratagem yeah as required possibly uh, presumably in the chaos codex it will cost points to do that to have those marks rather than a command point upgrade Maybe. I mean, in theory, that would allow you to have toughness six havocs. Mm hmm. Well, that'd be fun. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, possibly. But I just really like this idea of that this is an undivided unit and it's yeah. using its alliances in a way to move from pantheon to pantheon. Like, it's pretty cool. God to god. You know, something that is very common and, in fact, if anything, the most common practice thing in the law. But. The it's very least common practice thing seen on the tabletop because units are usually dedicated to a god explicitly or get no benefit at all. Yeah, it's uh, very word bearers. It is. Um, and then the other two that I wanted to highlight were the demonic boon and mortal boon. Um, because these are, again, very interesting cross codex play that we don't normally see. So the demonic boon for one CP. Use a stratagem at the start of the fight phase when a legion disciples unit, excluding vehicles from your army, is within six inches of a friendly demonic disciples unit and is selected to fight. Until the end of the phase, add one to the strength characteristics and models in the legion disciples unit. Your mortal unit gets benefits to its combat prowess because it's near a demon unit that's basically bestowing its gifts upon them. Yeah, that's pretty cool. And then the, the flip side of that is the Mortal Boon for 2CP. Use this charger with the starting morale phase. Select one Demonic Disciples unit from your army. There's within 6 inches for friendly Legion Disciples unit, excluding vehicle units. Until the end of the phase, each time that Demonic Disciples unit takes a morale test, it is automatically passed, and you count as having passed that test with an unmodified roll of a 1. It is important because if you're a Demon unit with a banner, yep. that's the result that means that not only do you pass the test, you also have D6 models come back to life. That's cheeky, that is. Yeah, it is. So the ability to guarantee that because you've got your mortal worshippers there acting as your tether to reality, the demons are more likely to stabilise um, from the warp and remain in the battle. Yeah. Then again, I just think it's this really cool concept of the the coordinated relationship between mortal and demon, and yeah. how they become greater than the sum of their parts. And again, very word bearery. Yeah, it's it. The whole thing is very interesting. It's very thematic, and it's a cool concept to combine things from different army lists into one new army list, which. Uh, I'm not sure if we've actually seen that at all in like eighth or ninth edition, but in 
you know, back in the day, it definitely was a thing where you'd have army lists that were like special lists that had units from multiple codexes combined. Uh, I think the um, uh, Forgeworld used to produce like armies like that. Uh, and I think they used to appear in uh, Warhammer Fantasy and stuff quite a lot. Uh, so it's, it's it's quite cool kind of nod back to things in that uh, that respect. But it's also a bit weird that obviously it's, as you say, it's future-proof because both of the codexes involved are old and likely to be replaced at some point in the, you know, hopefully not too distant future. Yeah, because basically all it basically says is when, you know, a demon unit or an Astartes unit and uh, it references rules such as demonic locus or legion trait, things which are yeah. more than likely going to still remain and exist in future books. They might do completely different things, but the idea is you're still able to replace them with the disciples' equivalents yeah. in whatever ninth edition book they are. In fact, they'll even work in an interim period if one of them uh, is released and the other one's still working off an 8th edition iteration. Yeah. It'll still allow for interplay. Yeah, definitely. So yeah, I mean, for me personally, <laughs> if and when I get around to revisiting my Chaos Demons, this is the way I would have always loved to play things. I always loved playing like multi-god and having all of the pantheon represented. Um, in fact, I used to use old mini Bellacor, or <laughs> I like to refer to him, firstborn Bellacor. <laughs> Um, as one of my warlords at the time because he allowed me to have this concept of the undivided leadership of my pantheon of chaos units so and this was very much um, in my wheelhouse and to be honest there's nothing stopping you from running a disciples uh, army of renown as a pure Astartes or pure demon force no you don't have to have a mix of both it's just if you're playing with your demon units you have to have equal representation of the gods yeah I feel like you're, you're most likely going to have mostly demon or mostly mortal and then like a little bit of the other mixed in. Possibly. Um, so, I know for me personally, I'd love to just run a pure demon army using this army of renown. Okay, fine, it means I forfeit a couple little things like one or two of the stratagems yeah. I can't make use of. But I get access to the Nautic Discipline, which I think is better than a lot of the disciplines with the Chaos Demons. You get access to the better Locus. Um, and fine, I can't take any greater demons, but that would really be the only real army restriction I'd have. And the fact yeah. that I have to have an even spread of units, but I think that would work fine anyway. Yeah, definitely. I think it's um, of all of the reg on, uh, of all of the armies of renown and probably the formations and the things that came before this is the most interesting one uh, I would agree just in terms of the you know the stuff you can do with it like the you know the way it takes two different armies and you can use them to create something different I think the only thing that's uh, kind of similar is the um, the creations of bile list from yeah, Psychic Awakening, but that's still only one codex. Um, but the idea that it takes a codex and 
basically swaps the special rules for some new ones to make it play differently. Yeah, in that case, it kind of dispels the idea of um, narratively a force being a single legion, and instead it's this this yeah. collection of you know heretics and um, Astartes units that have flocked to Bile's banner because, as individuals or as small you know war bands, they've decided to align themselves with Bile's interests rather than wherever they originated from. Yeah. So yeah, it's a good one. So, so we yeah. like it. <laughs> we do, yeah. I mean, we were sort of saying before the show, in all honesty, it does feel a little bit like more of the same, but the same is good. Yeah. You know, it's... more crusade rules, more campaign systems, some additional armies of renown, and in particular, the Disciples one seems like a, a really good and interesting concept. Certainly more so than like the Skatari, but better. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I think, in all honesty, I think Book of Fire perhaps um, just feels like the closing of the book on the Charidon system, if not a a big bang to end on. Um, it's more just a piece of closure in the sense of this last 12 months of 9th edition. Um, and that said... I am really looking forward to the next campaign book in Octarius. Yeah. Now, admittedly, that is because I am an orc player, and I know yourself are mm-hmm. very excited because you are both an orc and nib player. Yep. And so, whereas perhaps the focus on Death Guard and Mechanicum and everything else in Charadon has not been hugely impactful for me personally, I've still really enjoyed them. So, because of that, I can only imagine I'm going to really enjoy Octarius when I actually get to. Hopefully, play around with some of the orc stuff. Yep, and hopefully, I—I I mean, I think we should try and uh, play some stuff in it when we get hold of that. Hopefully, I think we should hopefully actually have the opportunity to play games whilst it's around and fresh and new and exciting. Yep, and uh, hopefully, it will be all the better for it. Still feels like a novelty, doesn't it? <laughs> Little bit. So, um. At the end of that, again, very crunchy, rule-heavy episode, I think the next episode is probably going to be the look at the Amongst the Ashes Crusade mission pack, which will be fun. I do like the stuff that's going on there. And then maybe the episode after that, we might either have a, a crusade, well, a non-crusade catch-up with some of the factions we've not covered, or it could possibly be our 40k fun facts. Charadon Part 2. Who knows? These hmm. are some of the soon-to-be-coming episodes to the show. Um, but I think I think we're probably just going to call it there for tonight, Dan, to be honest. I think we'll come back with some community spotlights um, in the next episode, because it's already been a long one, and it's been a bit longer than I expected it to be, even though I felt it was going to be a quicker <laughs> review than the last book. <laughs> Technically it is. Technically, technically, technically. Um, so yes, thank you again, Dan, for joining me tonight. That's all right. I say it has very much been a bit more of a one-sided conversation. I felt, but um, <laughs> I'm glad you've been here to talk through it with me. And uh, it, yep. it sounds like you found it interesting and insightful, at least. Yeah. And I hope our listeners have too. 
So, yes, until next time, guys. This has been the Narrative Wargamer podcast, helping you to discover more ways to play. Goodbye.